welcome to Book City Roanoke. I'm Douglas Jackson, and I'm joined today with guest Cameron Terry, farmer and proprietor of the urban farm operation Garden Variety Harvest. One of the strategies of Book City Roanoke from the beginning has been to ask experts in a field about books that are important to them in that field and that have shaped them. And this episode is going to harken back to that, I think. And we're going to learn a little little bit about Garden Variety Harvest um, as we go. Cameron Terry falls into the category of city builder, which I think is kind of a cool term for uh, a farmer. And we're seeing that more often, I think, now as we we shorten the distance between people and and what they eat and who grows the the food and where it's grown. Um, This podcast is brought to you by Book No Further, and that's Roanoke's independent bookstore putting ideas in your head since 2017 down on the Roanoke City Market. And this season, we're focused on books, writing, and the personal renaissance. And with that, I want to dive right into our conversation. So thanks for being here with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, let me dive into it by just asking you to describe your operation. Sure, sure. So I, um, I run a vegetable farm on people's yards, basically, right? So uh, my farm is not one piece of land, but several different uh, properties throughout the city. It's uh, people's yards, it's community garden property, and uh, kind of wherever we could find to plant vegetables in year one. Um, we're going into our third season of operation here in Roanoke, um, and we sell at the Grand Village Farmers Market. We also sell to a handful of um, local restaurants as well. So we focus on um, annual vegetables, mostly salad greens is kind of what we specialize in because um, those are the things that we can um, grow the most of quickly and sell for a high dollar value. We also play with some of the summer favorites um, that people expect to see at the farmer's market, right? So we grow some tomatoes and cucumbers, um, eggplant, okra, and stuff like that. The things that grow really well in a hot southern city. Um, but our favorite things to provide for people are really awesome, freshly cut salad greens. And what's the response been like customers? Um, the response from not just customers, but also from the clients that we work with the homeowner clients has been surprisingly good. Um, uh, I, I actually have a form on the website where people can go to sign up to offer their yard, uh, to add to the network. And I find myself now in year three having to kind of um, temper people's expectations and tell people no a lot more often than I thought I would when we first came here. I kind of pictured that it would be me going and like knocking on people's doors and asking, you know, can I farm your yard in exchange for a basket of vegetables every week? And I never had to do that. Um, I uh, immediately, it was people kind of approaching me as soon as I had a presence at the farmer's market and Um, what I found is that people really, uh, want to be a part of a local food system in more creative ways than simply shopping at the farmer's market or buying from the co-op, right? Um, this idea that the space that they would be mowing with a lawnmower every week, uh, could be used productively to provide food to their community is something that people find really attractive. And, um, as far as customers go, um, uh, I have people who will come and spend uh, upwards of 20 or $25 every week in my market booth because they say that when they buy salad from me, it, it, it lasts so much longer than what they buy in the grocery store, right? And that's, um, that's the beauty of growing uh, in an urban context, right? I can 
Um, I can cut something on a Friday afternoon and have it at the farmer's market on Saturday morning. Um, I can have stuff cut Friday morning and have it delivered to a restaurant Friday afternoon, right? So the access to market that I have, I don't drive more than five miles on my delivery run. Um, it means that everything that we that we deliver is is very fresh, right? Yeah. And so when you look at a um, somebody's yard, do you immediately know what 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 what's going to grow best there? <laughs> what's is this is the soil very different in different parts of the city? What's that process? Yeah. Like? Um, uh, there's a lot of red clay in Southwest Virginia. That's what everybody is told, right? Um, but what I found is the closer you get to uh, riverbeds, the better the soil is. Um, mm. And so I've uh, most of our farming now is taking place in uh, in Southeast, um, and we're pretty low lying, and it means that our soils uh, over, you know, thousands if not millions of years has settled, and you end up with kind of more silty soil than you do on um, on the hillsides and mountaintops where people kind of complain of this really compacted soil. I'm getting pretty good at, you know, when somebody fills out the form on the website and wants me to come look at their yard, I'm getting pretty good at uh, knowing by just looking at Google Earth whether or not it makes much sense. Um, And when I have to tell somebody no, I try to do my best to um, give them some ideas of what they could grow on that space if I'm not if I'm not interested in adding it to the network. Mm. How many how many um, yards or properties are in the network now? We are growing in. I say we. It's pretty much a one man operation at this <laughs> point. Still, I still I get I get some help from uh, my girlfriend Chloe and my brother Aaron um, for uh, farmers market duties and stuff like that. But the day to day operations is a pretty one one man thing. Um, five different properties now. Um, and all of them, um, one thing I'm really proud of now is they're all on the east side of 581. So I'm going to be driving a lot less in 2020 than I did in the last two years. When we first moved here, I had to kind of take whatever I could get. Right. Um, and I, I put a lot more miles on, uh, on the vehicle than I had hoped to. So it's nice to kind of tighten the belt geographically in that way. Mm hmm. And that's a, uh, I know that's an important neighborhood uh, for Carillion, and they're making some investments there. And you've been partnering in some of these, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I kind of stumbled into the community garden office um, not long after I moved here because I thought it would be a smart uh, connection to make. And it turned out they were on the brink of starting this really smart project at Morningside Park where they were taking a uh, part of this massive um Uh, grass park and turning it into both a community garden and an urban farm project. The idea being that people could come and rent a space in the community garden um, for $30 a year and that that spot is theirs to grow whatever they want. But also there is a an operating urban farm plot right next door. And so they can come to uh, educational events there that are both gardening related and just kind of whole health related. We do a lot of um, yoga classes and Reiki and, um, art meditation and stuff like that. Um, kind of giving Carillion the chance to step outside of what is generally thought of as a hospital operations and, and try to address the whole self and do that, you know, by connecting people with food. And so we do cooking classes and all kinds of stuff there at Morningside. And it's, for me, it offers a chance to, um, to grow some things that I might not generally grow, 
in this uh, urban farm context where every square inch needs to be able to produce a certain dollar figure, I can kind of grow at Morningside what I think people want to see and try to give them the best educational picture of what an urban farm can be and uh, and not be on the hook to uh, to sell those things at the market. We give away most of the produce that is grown at Morningside uh, to people that come to events and um, and to a handful of food pantries and stuff like that. So I don't have to worry about what it's going to sell for. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. And, and are you doing the educational workshops? Some of it. Yeah. Some of it, yeah. Um, uh, I do a handful of gardening classes every year, um, kind of seasonally appropriate. And then um, a lot of the other teaching is done by Karelian staff. Um, they actually just hired a dietitian that will be handling a lot of the uh, the diet-related classes there, too. So the health and outreach department at Karelian really is trying to make it so that this is a space where they can um, they can approach uh, the the whole health idea and and not focus on prescriptions and and stuff like that, but just kind of be a bit more of a preventative maintenance kind of idea. You know, mm-hmm. that's seems a, a good fit for your philosophy and and the work that you do. What's prepared you? For for this work. Tell me a little bit about your path. Um, well, this is uh, kind of a second career for me. Um, we moved to Roanoke in uh, about two and a half years ago. And it was for me with the mission of starting this business. But my previous career was in media. I went to film school. Um, I had kind of a, a freelance business where I did music videos and I did, I shot commercials and stuff like that. Um, and then I also uh, paid the bills most recently as a photographer and a general manager for a uh, fine art retailer. Um, and that gave me a chance to kind of learn, working for such a small business, learn about um, the the pieces of business that I was really not taught at film school, right? How to communicate with customers and how to keep the books and, and know whether something is worth um, worth your time as a business person. All things that really were not taught in a film school context. And by the time I had worked for five years for this art retailer, I kind of came to the conclusion that I was not really passionate about African art. So it was time to think about applying those skills that I had learned to something I could be passionate about. And, um, and I settled on, um, on growing food because it was something that over the last few years I had become increasingly obsessed with. I was uh, the the container garden in the backyard was out of control, <laughs> and it was taking more time than than most hobbies should, and so it was time to think about well can I can I make money at this, and um, and so I figured I'd give it a shot. Uh, the one thing missing was I didn't have a um, I didn't have a farm right. Uh, most people my age who are in farming have have done it because they have inherited land right, and that. That wasn't going to happen for me. And so um, I, I went on a bit of a sabbatical uh, with my girlfriend and we went and we volunteered on farms in southern Canada um, for two months. Uh, and during that time, I was introduced by one of our farm hosts to a book called The Urban Farmer uh, by a guy named Curtis Stone. And um, uh, she told me about this book. I went to town and got the book the next day. And I don't think I put it down until I got home. It was, um, it was the key for me to to a, a business model that I could actually execute. Um, 
uh, and not have a, an, a huge bank loan over the business when I tried to start it. And Curtis is a YouTube star at this point, and he's famous for being having been able to gross uh, $250,000 in a single year on a quarter acre of land there in Kelowna, BC. And so his book outlined very clearly how he did this. He showed his work in a way that made me confident that I could try to do duplicate something like that, you know? Wow. Yeah. And, um, was it, and and it's it's one thing to, to read a book and watch a video and it's another to have the, you know, the courage and confidence, uh, to come to a new community, introduce an idea like that and, um, and see it through. What have you learned in, in that process about yourself or, or even about the community? Um, I think that I, I was very fortunate that, that Roanoke was the place that we settled on. Um, and we didn't have a whole lot of offers on the table. Chloe's parents had moved here not long before we decided that we wanted to make this jump. And they offered to let us start the business in their backyard. And so I researched and learned a little bit about Roanoke, and it seemed like it could be a good fit. But you never know those things until you kind of get on the ground. Um, I think the main thing that I've learned is that um, if you are genuine and you are bringing a product or a service to the community that you believe is um, is worth having, is nutritious in this case, um, then there's almost no way it won't be received well, right? I was afraid I'd be kind of seen as like some carpet bagging um, hipster coming here and try to farm people's yards, right? And that that's the opposite of what happened. I think people saw that um, there was a need for good local salad greens um, and you can never have enough great fresh vegetables in a farmer's market and so it's never been a challenge for us to to be able to sell the stuff that we grow the the challenge is can we grow more right Mm -hmm. i i think that um roanoke is in this unique place where um there is a deep uh small farm ethos that that rides below this part of the country right that um, now you go outside of Roanoke City proper and you see all these properties that are 10 or 15 acres that are just mowed grass. But before that, they were massive plantations that were cut up and subdivided. Um, but all the while, people had gardens, right, where they were growing their own food and, um, and providing um, and bartering with their neighbors and stuff like that, right? And... Um, and somewhere along the line, a lot of that has, has been lost. And a lot of the people that I talk to um, about, about these concepts, they're, they're hearkening back to a time when they remember gardens being grown by their neighbors, um, but, and, and they want to get back to it, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and it's a small enough town where I don't have a whole bunch of competition from massive food distributors and large farms that are trying to under cut my my pricing right um and there's a solid number of restaurants in town with smart chefs who value local sourcing um and that number is increasing also Mm -hmm. and it's an exciting time to be a part of a community that seems to be um waking up to um to localizing food systems as a way to to eat better and also be a bit more responsible um from a carbon footprint perspective yeah. 
This is Douglas Jackson, and you're in Book City, Roanoke, and that's Cam Terry talking to us about garden variety harvest, and we, and we heard about one book that was really important to him. The sponsor for this podcast is Book No Further down on Roanoke's historic city market, and Dolores Vest does a great job of, you know, kind of curating both new and used books there. And it's, a, it's kind of a fun place to walk in, and you might have an interest in one particular topic and just say, hey, do you have any books on, and fill in the blank. And uh, it's, it's a great way to start a conversation. You never know what you're going to come, come across. Um, and with that, let's talk about um, some other books that have been important to you. Sure. Um, I'd say that um, one book that, that I felt made me more confident as a cooker, not just as a farmer, was a book called Ingredient. Um, the author to which is actually a, um, a, an acquaintance of my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So um, when she heard that Ollie had written this book, she got a copy for us. And it's, um, it's a scientific look at the very basic elements of cooking um, and talking about how ingredients work together, you know, and, and heat and cold and stuff like that. Um, it, and that type of thinking really gives me the confidence to experiment in the kitchen, which was at the beginning of why I started growing food in the first place. Um, I started growing food and, and recognized how much better things taste when they are fresh and how much better it feels to eat something that you grew yourself, right? There's an odd, um, ego that is satisfied (laughs) by when you're able to, to grow something for yourself and then share it with friends and they actually think it's good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so experimentation in the kitchen is a big reason why I started growing food in the first place. Um, and I thought that ingredient was a really smart look at um, breaking that stuff down to a level that people can really understand and feel confident in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And, and you do some value-added products as well to talk a little bit about some of those and 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 what you've learned what you learned from ingredient that might have played a role in sure sure um i think the value added uh well first of all chloe is a uh, a phenomenal baker and so she brings a baked good to the market every week and um, she focuses on gluten-free recipes because of the requests of a handful of our customers it's kind of a niche that wasn't um, particularly f- well filled at every weekly market. And so that's where she focuses. And um, I'd say halfway through our first growing season, we got to this point where we had more cucumbers than we knew what to do with. And so even though I don't really love pickles, I figured that's the easiest thing to do with them, right? So I, I started doing um, just a simple salt brine recipe with a few very secret herbs and spices in there. (laughs) And uh, people loved them. Uh, People loved having small batch um, pickles of not just cucumbers, but we do okra and we do radishes and stuff like that. Also, Um, kind of if we can get it to sit still long enough and fit it in a jar, we'll pickle it. And people (laughs) have really loved this idea that um, that one, we're reducing our waste, but we're putting a product in their hand that is something they're familiar with that they can snack on. Um, they're shelf stable, so people can use them as gifts, right? Um, so it means that I spend a little bit more time in the kitchen than I really anticipated when I started this business. But it makes it so our our products aren't going to waste, 
right? And we're able to put them in the hands of the customer um, in a way that um, that's value added. So we're able to charge a little bit more for that product. So um, it's been really exciting. And I also have a friend who started a, um, a fermented foods business, uh, Katie. And, um, and so we've started doing some, um, some krauts and some kimchi and stuff like that also. And, um, you know, those things are just so good for gut health and, um, and the microbiome and people really, really value, uh, small batches with that also, because it means you can get some really interesting flavors. Right before I came here, I met with Katie and I gave her a whole bunch of bulb fennel to play with. So, um, you know, we can put whatever we want in these ferments and make 12 or 15 jars at a time. And if it doesn't come out, look, you know, looking or tasting exactly how we wanted it, then we eat it ourselves and we move on, you know? Mm -hmm. So working in these small batches is a way that we can kind of offer products to people where they're experimenting along with us. And that's kind of a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And and are those under garden variety harvest or does Katie have another she has her own uh business name uh spoiled rotten ferments is the name that she's (laughs) operating under um and so uh we slap that sticker on and i buy those products straight back from her and then put them on the um on the table at the market Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes she'll come and try to uh sell them with us and that's when we always sell the most right because when there's somebody that truly believes in the product it's hard to tell them no yeah that's one of the best things about the farmer's market is talking with the people who are growing it or making it and uh, going deeper. Like the more we know about, about what we're, what we're eating and, and uh, what's available, the, the more we, the more we enjoy it. Right. Um, and Absolutely. The, the more conscious we are mm-hmm. of it. You know, what's, what's another book that that's been important to you? Um, the other book that I thought would be interesting to talk about today um, is a book by Leah Peniman called Farming While Black. Um, and I read this book about a year ago. So it was between my first and second season. I had had a year where, no, I didn't, um, I didn't make a fortune, but I also didn't lose my shirt. And so it was time to kind of sit down and think about what, what improvements we could make to become more efficient as an operation and, and, um, and what, what things we wanted to grow for next year. And I picked up uh, farming while black, um, because I think that these are um, these are issues that are not often talked about when we talk about localizing our food systems. Right? Is like who's included? Right? Who's included as a customer, and who's included as a producer? And um, Leah runs a farm in upstate New York called Soul Fire Farm, and um, and they grow um, a lot of African varieties of vegetables and they run a CSA program where they, um, they deliver the CSA door to door because a lot of their customers don't have transportation so that they can't, um, they can't be expected to drive to a central pickup point. Um, and they accept, um, snap benefits and that sort of thing. Right. So, um, it's this really special nonprofit farm who is really serving an underserved community, um, of, a low-income black and brown people in New York City. And um, and I was just really inspired by their um, the, the fact that they kind of ignore what a lot of people say about local food systems, and that is that it's, it's for people with money, it's for city dwellers. And they said, well, 
that's not the model that we want to work under. And they've found a way to make it work. Um, and then the other thing that I really find inspiring about the work that Soulfire does is this teaching regimen. And so they go out and, and do these, um, you know, one and two day workshops with people about um, food apartheid and bringing sovereignty back to our food system. Um, and, uh, and so I went to one of their trainings in December in Harrisonburg and just found myself even more inspired by this idea that we can, um, not only can somebody like me who's growing vegetables for my community provide sustenance, but I'm exactly the type of person, uh, this small farm operation who's going to be responsible for, changing the way our food system works and making it so that everybody is included at that table, right? We can't expect Kroger or Dole Pineapple to do this work for us. This work is done by the people on the ground actually producing for their local communities. And so um, it's something that I, I try to think about on a daily basis. And, you know, who are my products going uh like what, whose tables are my products gracing and how can I do more to make it so that, um, people with low incomes feel included in my local food system. Mm -hmm. What are some of your thoughts, um, projecting forward, um, you know, after reading the book and going to the training in, in December, what are some thoughts about, you know, Roanoke and our particular landscape, uh, where we might make some improvements? Yeah. Um, I think that um, we are so very fortunate to have somebody like Leap working in Roanoke, um, a nonprofit who really um, tries to understand local food systems and um, and and play a big role in bringing people to the table who are going to help them make sure that everybody is served by the local food system. Um, I. One thing that um, that has struck me since I've been to Roanoke is that there are large neighborhoods here, large swaths of neighborhoods that are two or three miles from the closest grocery store. Um, and these are this is not by happenstance. These are choices that are made by corporations that it doesn't make business sense to operate in a given location, right? And so um, what I would like to see, is um, is local proprietors kind of pick up the slack there, right? Um, I've never really lived in a location where local, locally owned, small, like family-owned grocery stores are the norm. But um, but if you could make it to the point where you had half a dozen people who want to own grocery stores, um, kind of uh, combine their purchasing power to the point that they could compete on that level and be in a location that is convenient for people to walk to in, in these underserved communities, then we'd be in a much better space. Like I said before, we can't expect the big uh, conglomerates to bail us out of this problem. It's going to have to come from, from the grassroots. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that uh, Roanoke is in a unique place to be able to take advantage of that um, right now. You know, Uh, there are, there are people listening to these problems on city council and stuff like that. We are, we're not unaware. Um, and, and it's encouraging to be able to talk to people who have the power to do things 
um, and and hear them say that they take these things seriously. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and there and there's something about the the size of the community, um, but where we are right now in this point in time, particularly, and I believe there's a will to address some of the challenges uh, and um, kind of that creative spirit that says, yeah, it really matters what we do locally. Uh, it, you know, it, this is not New York City or Denver or LA or Boston, um, but it's important that we're working here all the same. Um, in fact, it might be even more important that we're working here. Um, I want to thank you for what you're doing in the community. I can remember meeting you, um, I think in 2017, um, but about when you were um, starting this. And um, just, you knew what you were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I had some ideas. Uh, yeah. You speak it into an into existence, right? Yeah. You know, um, I, um, I I knew what I wanted to do, but um, I feel like uh, taking the right meetings and meeting the right people early on has made it so that um, I'm, I'm well positioned to kind of make good on those dreams that I I was talking about when I first moved here. So, well, well great. Thank you for doing it and. The cool thing too is is people are watching, you know, and there are younger there are younger people watching you doing this as well, and and that makes a whole lot of difference uh, in a community. Well, uh, I'm Douglas Jackson. We're out of time here in Book City, Roanoke, and I want to thank Cameron Terry for spending time with me today. And, uh, and you can you can visit with him at the at the Grandin farmer's market when it's back in season uh, and that's with a garden variety harvest and you can get fresh produce and some some pickles that's Any, right <laughs> like the way you describe those pickles <laughs> uh, and um, we have a sponsor and that's uh, book no further down on Roanoke's historic city market and uh, next time I'm actually I've actually twisted her arm and Dolores Vest is going to be our next guest oh wow yeah yeah so so I think that's going to be a fun conversation uh, thanks a lot Cameron oh thank you it's my pleasure